All my children have enjoyed hearing stories as they get ready for bed each evening. And sometimes they're books we read together or other times they've been silly stories that I've made up along the way, but often, well, they've been old stories that have stood the test of time. Uh, My youngest daughter is four now. At the moment, she's absolutely entranced by the story of the three little pigs. Uh, I'm pretty sure you know it. Or maybe at least a version of it. In fact, she's been wanting to hear this story so often that um, I started doing a bit of research on it. I tried to find out where did this story come from? How long has it been around? It's, It's been around at least two centuries. Um, in fact, around the same time as the, the wall behind me was built, 1830, that was, uh, that was about the same time that the story of the three little pigs first made it at least in a published book. But historians are pretty sure that it existed long before that as an oral tradition, something that was told but had never been published. I was surprised when I looked back at the history of the story. Elements of the story that aren't that well known now, that existed even in early published editions, things that I weren't even aware of, whole new parts to the story that I'd never ever heard of before. The stories like The Three Little Pigs... They exist as a uh, a genre, a type of literature called a fable. Um, They're a bit different to fairy tales. It's a a story that exists to teach a lesson. Um, The sort of story that we tell our children so that they can learn the moral of the story. But let's think about the, the old story of the three little pigs for a moment. Um, The story and the version that I like to tell my daughter. Fables tell us about conventional wisdom. Fables were there to teach children the value of listening to parents or hard work or um, doing things in the right order or don't take shortcuts in life. In fact, that's what The Three Little Pigs is about, right? Three little pigs who set off to find adventure in their way in the world and two of them take shortcuts, building a house of straw or building a house of sticks in order that they might be able to play uh, quicker. So get the work done out of the way fast so that we can get onto what we really want to do. But the third little pig, well, he knows because he's such a wise little pig that it's better to work hard now and relax in safety later. So he builds his house out of brick and you know how the story goes. The the three little pigs taught our children, certainly of a bygone era, the value of hard work. Don't take shortcuts. Do things well. It elevated the, at least the Western value of a strong work ethic and wise decision making. It 
told us that making things that last is valued and that taking shortcuts is foolish. Wise people build brick houses and foolish people, they do something less. Life, as my daughter is learning it through this story, consists in people who make wise and foolish decisions. And these decisions are proven by, well, whether you get eaten by the big bad wolf. But I guess it's worth asking the question, what happens when the pig who built the straw house survives and the wolf gobbles up the clever pig who made the brick house what happens when the big bad wolf ends up eating them all and getting away with it what happens when conventional wisdom doesn't seem to work that's what solomon's concerned about In fact, right through the book of Ecclesiastes, but especially in these chapters from chapter 7 through to chapter 11, which we're going to just sort of touch a few examples out of these chapters and survey them a little bit this morning. Solomon's looking at life under the sun and his conclusion is sometimes the wolf wins. Chapters 7 through 11 read in, in large part A bit like reading the book of Proverbs. Uh, Conventional wisdom that we expect to explain life. But Solomon keeps interrupting the flow with comments that sound a bit like, well, a bit like he's an Aussie. And so you can read in between the lines a little bit and he keeps putting forward these conventional wisdom sort of um, advice pieces. And then he goes, but yeah, nah, or yeah, but. Because he's been looking at life and he says, sometimes it doesn't work out the way we think it should. I'm pretty sure you've probably experienced that in your life already. What happens when our conventional wisdom falls short or just doesn't work? Or it doesn't translate well across cultural shifts. Do we throw it all away? Do we bulldoze the past and make way for a new road? Or, or maybe we can make sense of it through the lens of a greater wisdom than this world has to offer. So I'm going to make a couple of observations and and show you how these chapters work a little bit. First one is this. This is my first sort of big heading, big point. Brick houses are made to stand. I mean, that's what we learn from the three little pigs, right? Brick houses are made to stand. But think about it in the way Solomon presents wisdom. In fact, the way that God presents wisdom. God has a way that he has designed this world to work. And he says it's good. In fact, he says it's very good. God designed an an order and a a pattern and a rhythm that that, sings in harmony with its creator. 
You know the, the feeling that you get when you try something and it, it's so hard to explain, but something about it makes you just go, it just works or it just fits properly. We struggle to even articulate the feeling that we get, but something about it makes it feel whole and good. And, and I think it's an echo of the way things were in the garden once upon a time when our first fathers walked this earth. It's a very small, but I think a profound way of our hearts agreeing with the creator and we look at something and we say, yes, it's good. We're also deeply aware that something hasn't worked out the way that it has meant to have worked out. Something deep inside is jarringly aware that something is broken in this world. It's like a note has been struck out of tune in a great symphony that should sound beautifully and we hear it and we cringe and we think that's not right. That's not the way it's meant to be. And yet even this is a reminder that somewhere deep down in the recesses of humanity, we know that there was once a way things were meant to be and that that way was good. Living life according to God's design and, and his purpose and rhythm and pattern for this world, well, that's what the Bible calls wisdom. And it's primarily about what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, we're going to read this. Wisdom is as good as the inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. Because wisdom is protection as silver is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Solomon's saying there's a conventional wisdom in this world when we live according to God's design and pattern and it just works and it's protection and it's good. Of course, if we went to another famous book that well, Solomon compiled much of, the book of Proverbs, much is said about the worth of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 20 says, Wisdom calls out in the street. She makes her voice heard in the public squares. She cries above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. How long, inexperienced ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking? And you fools hate knowledge. If you respond to my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is likened to a woman who will lead you into joyful discernment as you follow God's good design. Wisdom in Ecclesiastes, well, it's like the wisdom that is won through the school of hard knocks. Here's my second point. Sometimes the big bad wolf wins. 
The School of Hard Knocks teaches us that sometimes the big bad wolf wins. We know it. Solomon knows it. We both know it because we are painfully aware that something is profoundly broken about this world. Broken? Well, we, we need to understand that in two critically different ways, though. Here's the first way that we understand broken. We understand it by saying that the world we live in is broken. Solomon observes, all through this book actually, especially in these chapters that we're looking at, dozens of different ways in which things don't turn out the way that we feel they should. So in Ecclesiastes 7 and 15, he says, In my futile life, I've seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Or chapter 8, verse 14. There is a futility that he's done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say this too is futile. Or what about chapter 9, verse 2? Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also for the one who fears an oath. In other words, we, we see wise people who build their lives out of brick. But the big bad wolf still gobbles them up. Meanwhile, foolish, lazy people who built their lives out of straw, they prosper and they endure. The world we live in is broken. But there's a problem if this is our only category of brokenness. Here's the second way we need to think about it. Not only is the world broken, we are broken. We are broken. If we don't acknowledge our brokenness, or to use a more biblical term, our sin, then we risk living this life with an unhealthy sort of victim mentality where everything that goes wrong with my life is somebody else's fault. But Solomon, in fact God, won't allow us a free pass on this, okay? We can't be passive about this brokenness as though it was simply something that happens outside of us that we are affected by. Sure, we live in a broken world, but we must admit that we have contributed to the brokenness and we've done that in significant ways. We have each rebelled against God's good design in this world and, and we're trying to live a life in a way that rejects what we are designed to be. And we're trying to do that amongst the people who are doing exactly the same thing. Quite often our brokenness hurts ourselves. And quite often it hurts other people. Sometimes it's other people's brokenness that hurts us. And we live with the 
the pain of seeing those that we love who are in broken ways hurting themselves. To make matters worse, we usually try to fix our brokenness by broken means and with broken tools. Chapter 7, verse 29 in Ecclesiastes says, Only see this, I have discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. Or chapter 7 and verse 20, There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. Does that remind you of another verse that you might know of in the New Testament? It sounds awfully lot the language that Paul uses in the book of Romans. Romans 3 verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So God designed this world to work a certain way, but, but it's broken and we're broken. So we need to rewrite the script a little bit of this story. The problem seems impossible to solve until we realize the script needs to be rewritten. That's my third point that I want to make this morning. God has a good design, but sin has distorted the story. And yet there is hope. So conventional wisdom, three little pigs wisdom, that isn't the end of the story. God has a greater wisdom, a a manifold wisdom, a multifaceted wisdom. And that wisdom is seen most clearly in his plan of redemption to save sinners through Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, we read this. This grace was given to me, Paul writing this, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. The problem occurs when we treat the story of God's salvation like we do the story of the three little pigs. One obvious way that we could do that is by treating the Bible like a fairy tale. That's not what I'm primarily concerned about here. Too often, we are tempted to treat the glorious message of God's salvation not as a fairy tale, but as a fable. We read the Bible looking for the moral of the story, the conventional wisdom to live by so that everything will work out for us at the end happily ever after. But the Bible isn't a fable. It's a proclamation. It's not just about finding the moral. It's good news 
from the king. So, for example, instead of reading David and Goliath and wondering what's the moral of the story, is it, am I David who needs to step out in faith and conquer the giants of my life? Or maybe it's, uh, what are the five stones that I need to carry out with me each day? Could they be prayer or Bible reading or evangelism or kindness or courage maybe? No. Instead, we read the Bible as a proclamation of good news. It turns out that you're not David after all in that story. And Goliath isn't your singleness or your marriage or your lack of promotion or whatever other challenge it is that you're facing in life. If you're anyone in the story, if I'm anyone in the story, we're probably David's cowardly brothers who are trembling on the sidelines, unable to go out and fight God's enemy, unable to overcome God's enemy. The story is a proclamation of an unlikely hero, a David who comes to our rescue. And he does it through very unconventional means. And he utterly crushes the enemy, right? This is a proclamation of God's manifold wisdom in Christ, who though the world despised him, yet he crushed sin and he crushed death in a public public spectacle. With, with absolute profound power displayed that has completely rewritten the script of life. We live in a world where it appears that the big bad wolf has free reign. But the gospel has retold us a better story. Jesus says, I know. It seems like life isn't working the way it should. But the big bad wolf seems like he's getting away with murder. But I need you to know that I collared and cowered that mangy beast long ago. His doom is already secured. His power already destroyed. Jesus has already written the end of the story. And our happily ever after, well, it's found in him. So here's the conclusion. Conventional wisdom, three little pigs wisdom, is meaningless unless we find its meaning in Jesus.